This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, February the 12th, 2023. We are continuing in our journey through Colossians, and this is part three of that study, and week five of part three, and the title of this message is Freedom from Shadows. I encourage you to download my notes from the website, you want to follow along with me, have a Bible, just looking at some really, really key scripture today. So let's start with this. Because here's a question. What are the most, what would you say, may be the most important single words that we see in the New Testament. Maybe you think of words like God, Jesus, Lord, love, grace, sin, forgive. You know, there's one, though, that's, that's easy not to think of, but it's very, very important. In fact, we see it in the NIV at least over 160 times, and it's the word, therefore. You see, in Scripture, therefore connects a statement of truth to the consequence of that statement of truth. You know, like, here's what this truth looks like in life. Here's why this matters. A few examples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. And friends, in Colossians today, we have three, in Colossians, the book of Colossians, we have three therefores. The first one is in our text today. And guys, it is huge. You know, over the last three Sundays, as we've gone through this text, we've heard Paul exclaim, That you, the believer, but not just you as an individual believer, you as the church, as the family of faith, the community of faith, you have been made complete in Christ, set free of your flesh, raised with Christ, made alive with Christ. You are fully forgiven. All our spiritual enemies have been humiliated by the stunningly unexpected love and humility of the cross. So therefore, don't be judged or defrauded, don't have your joy and freedom sabotaged by obsolete religious shadows that aren't the real thing. Friends, Paul's warning here addresses two big pitfalls of Christian culture, then and now. And these are the realities, the temptations of religious pride and legalism. And beneath both of these is a very unlikely temptation. You know, when we think of temptation, what probably comes to mind are things like lust, greed, gossip, anger, fear. But this temptation, on the other hand, may be considered by some to be a virtue. But if it is, man, it is a sheep in wolf's clothing. And this is the temptation of rules. You know, instinctively, we think people don't like rules, right? We think we just want to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And of course, in some ways, that's true. But the honest reality is that in our human condition, especially the religious expressions of the human condition, oh man, we love rules. You know, seven years ago, I actually looked this up. Seven years ago, I used the example in my message, and you may have heard it. I I told you about a song by the Christian musician Derek Webb. And the song is called A New Law. 
You know, the lyrics can make you a little uncomfortable, but he is hitting at the heart of this truth. Here's just part of the lyrics of the song. And he says, Don't teach me about politics and government. Just tell me who to vote for. Don't teach me about truth and beauty. Just label my music. Don't teach me about moderation and liberty. <laughs> I prefer a shot of grape juice. Don't teach me about loving my enemies. Just give me a new law. Don't teach me to live like a free man. Just give me a new law. Because I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy. So just bring it down from the mountain to me. I want a new law. Give me that new law. You know, there's a video of this on YouTube. It's a bit grainy, but it's really powerful. I'm linking it on the website under the information for today's message if you want to go check that out. There's no thinking of this, guys. It's ironic that while people outside the church and many inside the church, we tend to look at Christians as being rule-driven, while the New Testament proclaims, in fact, it exclaims that in Christ we are free from the motivation of law, free from the motivation of guilt and obligation. This is what Paul describes in Romans 7, 6 when he says, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I've preached on this passage multiple times over the years because it's so important, and yet we still love our law. But why? And why are we warned against this time and again? Just a few thoughts here. You know, one is that law appeals to pride. If my behavior is motivated by keeping the rules or more of the rules than you, it's easy to look down on people that I think aren't doing their job. You know, it's easy to be judgmental and in doing so to elevate myself. You know, another, rather than raising the bar of moral behavior, see, we think that's what law does, but it doesn't. The motivation of law actually moves people toward the lowest acceptable standard. Another example, you know, throughout church history, perhaps no religious law has been more precious than the concept of the tithe, right? You are to give 10% of your income to the church, and, or, or you're being disobedient to Scripture and to God. Now, of course, this is solely based on a boiled-down formula of various teachings from the Mosaic Law, right, the Old Covenant, but to this day, so many churches and denominations love to hang on to it. In fact, it's not hard to find churches that teach the incredible liberation of Romans 7, 6, but yet somehow make an exception when it comes to the tithe. But here's why this matters. You know, if our giving is based on the tithe, right, that law, then what's in the inevitable question? Are we talking pre-tax or post-tax? Right? We want to know the minimal acceptable standard. On top of this, if we know we're failing to meet this, not even getting close to it, it opens the door to say, well, why, why really even bother? In contrast, the New Testament, the New Covenant proclaims, be a vibrant part of the body. Give what you have decided in your heart to give cheerfully, generously, with love, and without the burden of guilt and obligation. But you know, the worst thing about living under the yoke of religious rules and regulations is that they have no power to change our hearts. L listen here 
If, if you haven't heard this scripture before, this may rattle you a bit. Listen to what Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm actually starting in verse 7. And he says, Now if the ministry that brought death, right? did you catch that? If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, all right, parenthesis, what is Paul talking about there? Right, the law. If that, he says, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit, okay, that's, that's who we are now, the motivation of the Spirit, the motivation of love, our identity in Christ. He says, will not the, the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation, right, law, if that was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, again referring to life in the Spirit. And then he says, And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Wow. You know, I, I just got to say, hopefully I don't, well, Actually, maybe I will offend you. Who knows? Um, you know, there's so much drama in Christian culture over all these Ten Commandments monuments and the, the horrible secular governments and these, you know, people that we think are just terrible are wanting to take down the Ten Commandments monuments. And then that, that shouldn't happen, right? You can have all those arguments there. But the thing is, if Paul was here and we said, yeah, Paul, we're, we're fighting this battle to try to keep the, the, the monument to the Ten Commandments, he might say, well, do you, is it carved at the top of it, the ministry of death? <laughs> because that's what he says. And because the last sentence that we saw here in this passage, he says, if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Right, that sentence has two levels. You see, Paul here is saying that the law, from its origin, from the get-go, it was never meant to be God's permanent solution for how we live. It was always meant to be temporary until Christ would inaugurate the new way of the Spirit. Likewise, in our own personal lives, law does not have any ability to motivate. No, actually, let me take a step back. In our personal lives, law does have the ability to motivate us for a period of time, right? for a little bit. But the motivation of law always, ultimately fails. You know, put a tray of freshly baked cookies in a room with your kids or your husband and say, don't eat the cookies. You know, it's just a matter of time because we love those cookies. But friends, the motivation of the Spirit, of our identity, of love, it never fails. When we are walking by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of our flesh because to do so would violate the very nature of who we now are. Paul says it this way in Galatians 5, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Well, what is the yoke of slavery there? It is the law. And so now back to Colossians, right? This is a message from Colossians. So there's these false teachers spreading heresy in this young church. And here in our text, we're actually going to see the biggest clue as to what this heresy was. 
It was the temptation to think our rightness with God, our wholeness and wellness as God's people, was based on our religious performance, on keeping religious law and having elite and mystical religious experiences. And in response, Paul exclaims, Don't let these people condemn you. Don't let them pass judgment on you. And don't fall prey to their bankrupt religious philosophy with all its rules and regulations. You know, if Paul were writing this today, I think he may have looked at these legalists and just said, Don't judge me, bro. Don't judge me. So this gets us to our text. Colossians 2.16, and Paul writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. All right, the word judge here carries the idea of exclusion. You see, the Colossians were being tempted to judge, to push away and exclude people that these false teachers thought didn't meet an acceptable level of moral requirements which were very likely elements of the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament dietary laws, Jewish festivals, holy days, and as we've already seen, the practice of circumcision. Now, for for most churches today, these aren't issues. But what are equivalents in the church now that we may use to judge or exclude people based upon a misled sense of doctrinal, cultural, or social purity. because I, and Listen, I'm, I'm saying this humbly because I'm right there. If, if, if any of this gets at you, I'm right there with you. Um, and, and, and at times we do this, maybe not even purposely, but we, we do it you know, subconsciously with, with, without a good self-awareness that this type of stuff is going on within our church culture. So just a few examples. The first, you know, really isn't a big deal here, at least in our local Trinity family but it is definitely out there in church culture. And it's the way we dress. You know, beyond that, maybe the way we talk, um, you know, the vocabulary that we use about things, maybe the type of music we listen to, the way we express ourselves in worship. Now, these are all perfectly fine things if they are sincere expressions of our, our worship, our relationship with Jesus. But friends, they can easily become social tests that exclude people or make them feel unwelcome and judged. Here's one for you. You ready? How about politics? You know, how we assume that everyone has the same politics within the church, that everyone has the same way of thinking about current events and social issues, and then talking about these issues in such a way that could easily make a person feel uncomfortable or unwelcome. Guys, listen, we, again, we, again, we aren't self-aware of this at times, but the number of people who have left and not returned to churches because of the political rhetoric they have heard in the church, it is a tragedy. It, let's get a little personal here. Think about your top three political social issues, right? Things you have passionate thoughts, and opinions about. Okay, if you're really honest, do you think a person would have to agree with you on that issue, on these issues, to be a sincere Christian who loves the Lord? And if they didn't agree with you, would you struggle accepting them? Now, this can get messy, nuanced, because a New Testament worldview should inform how we think about politics and social issues. Details matter. But friends, so often it's just easier to draw our law-based lines and say, 
even if just to ourselves. You know, for me to view you as an equal brother or sister in Christ and to have genuine fellowship with you, you have to be on my side of this line. Now, of course, this doesn't always happen. And the thing I've always loved about the Trinity Church family is the political diversity within our local congregation. But friends, people leave churches over political issues all the time, and it hurts the body. And let me just parenthetically say, you could say everything I just said about politics, you could add all of those to non-essential doctrinal issues. Okay, I could spend time on that, but I'm not. But moving on, because here's the big picture idea. Friends, if our sense of spiritual maturity leads us to distance ourselves from other believers rather than draw us into unity, we likely have a problem. But going on, going on, Paul now describes these things, these external and material religious rules, doctrinal litmus tests, as shadows, and says there is only one thing that is truly substance. Verse 17, Paul says, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So God is saying to us here, these legalistic matters, they are just shadows. They aren't the real thing. So don't be judged and don't judge each other on fleeting issues that miss the only thing that truly does matter which is Christ, who he is, what he has done, and what this means for you as his disciples. Now, that's a pretty straightforward point. And yet, my friends, for the church in Colossa, there are two other things here in this text that are subtle but very powerful, and they were likely understood by the Colossian believers. And the first is the paradox Paul draws between shadow and substance. In fact, the NASB translates this as the substance belongs to Christ. Right? The NIV says the reality belongs to Christ. And just, just a parenthetical note here. Friends, the word for substance or reality that we see here is the same Greek word in other contexts that's translated as body, as in the body of Christ. And it's possible that Paul is making a double entendre here, referring to the substance of Christ and the body of Christ at the same time, noting how both are essential for the fullness of life in Christ. And he's going to end this paragraph with that very thought. But going on, friends, in our flesh, in our old human way of thinking, we would likely consider the spiritual things, the things of faith, to be the, quote, the shadows, right? Mysterious, unforeseen, uncertain. And then physical things that we can experience without faith, that those would be the things which are substantial and real. But in reality, the opposite is true. You see, the New Testament reveals it is the things of the Spirit, the reality we enter into through faith that is truly of substance, that will not pass away. And it is the physical and external things of this world that, in fact, are temporary and shadowy. You know, this was a big theme in the writing of C.S. Lewis, so much so that his biography and the movie, that, the movie about his life that was based upon it is entitled Shadowlands. Now, friends, that said, also core to a New Testament worldview is the, the, just, again, the conviction, the reality that this world, 
This life does matter. Christianity is a faith firmly rooted in the reality of life. Our expression of God's nature and character is expressed in the context of this life, most notably how we relate to other people in this life. God calls us to make our world a better place. You know, within a generation of Paul writing Colossians, the great heresy that will confront the church would be Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically said that the spiritual world was all that mattered, and the physical world had no meaning whatsoever. Therefore, anything you did, quote, in the flesh was perfectly fine. And my friends, this is not the perspective of the New Testament. We express our faith, we worship, we work, and we understand God's moral leadership all in the context of this physical life that we live today. Now, the bigger point Paul makes is making here is this contrast between the old age, the age of the law, the old covenant, and the new age, the new covenant, the age of life in the spirit. And this leads to the second subtle but very important point in this brief statement that we just read. And friends, it's that the new age has already come. It's already come. You know, we've talked about this so many times before, but we tend to think in terms of the current age being history as we know it and the age to come being heaven when we die or what will happen after the second coming of Christ. But the recurring proclamation of the New Testament is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the new age has already been inaugurated right in heaven and through the work of the Holy Spirit, through God's redeemed people, that's you and I, this new age is breaking out in the midst of now, in the midst of history as we know it. And so we, as citizens of heaven, are already part of the new age. And thus the things of the old age, such as the bondage of law, guilt, and obligation, these no longer have any meaning or power over us. You know, the grammar Paul used here points toward this. In the NIV, we read, these were a shadow, right? All these things, these were a shadow of the things that were to come. That's kind of awkward in the English. It's like the phrases both future and past tense at the same time. In fact, multiple English translations try to solve the awkward grammar by rendering the text the shadow of things that are to come. But the more accurate translation is the NIV really gets it here. It's these were the shadow of things that were to come, meaning the age to come, the fulfillment of God's promises to humanity through Israel, and the fulfillment of God's blessing, these were to come because they have already come. This is what Paul exclaims in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20-22, through 22, when he says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Now it is God who makes us both you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Right? It is to come, but it's already here because we have absolute confidence that we possess it. 
And then just, again, how he started that paragraph. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. My friends, the promises of God, the blessings of God, they have already come fully to every believer in every situation because they are received in Christ. It is the blessing of his presence, his spirit, and the new life, the new identity we have through faith in him. And so Paul is saying, this is who you are. So don't let anyone judge you. And you don't judge others based upon these things that are only shadows. And now Paul makes a parallel point, but he turns from external legalism to internal pride. You know, these false teachers would appear to be super spiritual, but there is a time, right? This is the point we see here. There's a time when super spiritual is actually unspiritual. Going on in verse 18, Paul says, So also, right, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Friends, here is described a person who claims to have an elite, probably highly emotional spiritual experience that other people don't have. Maybe visions, special revelations, right? Hearing from angels. You know, this image here is of a person who is so caught up in the emotion and drama of their spiritual experiences that they are, in fact, worshiping their experience rather than worshiping God. One of the scholars I read on this said, this kind of worship, while seeming super spiritual and heavenly minded, actually borders on idolatry. Friends, this is spiritual pride. And rather than being highly spiritual, such people are actually unspiritual. That's what the text is revealing to us. Their humility is false and their worship is really all about them. And so Paul warns, beware of such people. Don't let them disqualify you. Don't let them steal away, cause you to doubt the vibrancy and the fullness of your faith in Christ and Christ's presence in and with you. Okay, let's leave that there and move on. Yes, one of my favorite TV shows, it's not on anymore, it's called Parks and Recreation. Uh, you may or may not be familiar with it. But there's this great scene in one of the episodes where the character Leslie um, is sick. You know, she's one of the main characters. She's sick, but she's refusing to go to the doctor. And then Andy, right, Andy's character, he is not the sharpest, you know, pencil in the box. He's played, actually, by Chris Pratt. Andy's sitting at a computer, and he says, he's typing on the keyboard, and he says, Leslie, I typed in your symptoms, and it says that you have network connectivity problems. Guys, Paul is going on to say here, the core problem of legalism and spiritual pride is that they both result from and lead to big-time connectivity problems, spiritual connectivity problems with our true source of life, who is Christ. The first half of verse 19, Paul says, listen, they, right, these, these people that are doing all these things, trying to judge you and condemn you, right, and disqualify you, they have lost connection with the head. All right, stop right there. Paul's point is simple but powerful. And it's that the true evidence of whether or not a person belongs to God's people 
is not the observance of legalistic religious rules or super-spiritual experiences, but rather it's whether or not you belong to Christ, having received Christ's life by faith. And friends, if we have been made new in Christ, this will be evidenced in increasing measure by how we continue to grow and mature in our relationship with Christ, which of course is evidenced by how we love, by how we live, and the greatest single piece of evidence biblically is how we love. And this is how Paul concludes this paragraph as he points out that there are two realities of genuine spiritual growth. Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head, Paul says, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So, friends, the first absolute reality of spiritual maturity, to use Paul's language, is that Christ is our head. Christ is our foundation, our identity. Christ is who we look to for our hope, our character, our peace, our security, our contentment, our love. And it is Christ to whom we are surrendered as our center and authority. Now, of course, we fail at this, but I expect we all would agree, yes, the most important reality of maturity in Christ is Christ himself. But my friends, we see here a second indispensable reality of spiritual growth, and that is our active participation within the body of Christ. Paul's language here really is compelling. He said, Christ is the head of his body, and while the individual parts of the body all equally look to the head as their source, they are supported and held together by each other. And the verse ends by saying, the body grows as God causes it to grow. Now, church, this is a strong statement, but it's also one of great encouragement and hope. According to the scripture here, and many other similar passages and themes throughout the New Testament, if we desire to genuinely say, Christ is my head, my source, my authority, he is the one I worship, and I desire for the Spirit to continually grow my understanding and my experience of the goodness of the new life I have received in Christ. Friends, if that is the sincere desire of our heart, Scripture tells us the context in which that will happen is our loving, forgiving, encouraging, and servant-hearted participation within the community of faith, whatever that may look like. So, church, you have been made complete in Christ, raised with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ. You are fully forgiven, and all your spiritual enemies have been humiliated by the stunningly unexpected love and humility of the cross. So, as a family of faith, don't be judged. Don't be defrauded. Don't have your joy and freedom sabotaged by obsolete religious shadows that just aren't the real thing. Now, in the following paragraph, we will see just why religious legalism is so powerless and even dangerous. And we're going to go there next week. Friends, have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next Sunday.